This is iUniverse Radio, brought to you by iUniverse, the leading book marketing, editorial services, and supported self-publishing company. iUniverse Radio is your opportunity to hear firsthand from authors about their new books. It's an in-depth discussion about the author's passion about the development of his or her story in their own words. It's an inside look into the characters and the plot and how the story all came together. Here is iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, Walk Out, and the author, Henry C. Woodrum, Lieutenant Colonel, U.S. Air Force, retired. His son, Hank Woodrum Jr., has the privilege of publishing his father's book, and he joins us now on iUniverse Radio. Hello, Hank. Hi, Steve. How are you? Well, it's just a privilege to have you here and to tell your father's story, an incredible thriller. Uh, As someone said, a World War II tale of high adventure. That's what this is. So let me read a little bit what you've written about your book, so give everyone kind of a general view of what we're going to talk about. You say this, Lieutenant Woodrum was scheduled to begin a three-day pass to London. Instead, he had to fly a combat mission that lasted three months. This is his account of how he survived thanks to some quick thinking and the help of the French underground. Well, that gets everybody's blood pumping, just those few words. (laughs) My goodness, what an experience. And tell us a little bit about how he tried to publish his book years ago, and then it kind of fell to you to finish it. My dad felt it was important to tell what happened to him and to uh, not because he felt that he had done so much. He didn't think he was a hero. He was just doing his job. But because he felt it was important for everybody to know how much help he got from the people in uh, German-occupied France after he was shot down. And he started putting this together back in, oh, probably even back into the 60s and fine-tuned it and worked on it. And eventually, in the 80s, He had it together and uh, tried to get it published. But back at that time, we were just getting over the aftermath of Vietnam, and there was not a whole lot of interest in World War II stories. So he was unable to get it published, and then he he became ill in 88, 89, and passed away in 90. And eventually now my brother and I are getting to be able to get his work published and out there so that his accounts of what happened to him and how he was helped is uh, is out there for the world to take a look at. So here he was back uh, back in 1944, right? Well, actually, he probably stayed in the officer's club a little longer than he should because he was supposed to start a three-day pass to go to London the next morning. And instead, he got rousted out of bed early in the morning about, oh, dark 30, and and told that uh, he and his crew had to fly a combat mission because there was another pilot that was sick, so he had to take their place. So instead of uh, a three-day pass to London, he had to get up and and fly this combat mission, thinking it would last a few hours, and then he'd be able to come back and start his three-day pass to London. It was his 35th combat mission, and they were bombing a bridge on the outskirts of Paris. They got hit. Uh, they finished their bomb run, dropped the bombs on target, 
and uh, the plane was on fire, and they ordered uh, he ordered the crew to to bail out. That was that was his morning, wow. and I think after he got out of the plane and uh, was in the air, he felt you know exultation, you know relief. I'm, you know, I survived the burning aircraft. He was looking around for parachutes to see how many other crew members got out. Was able to see several others, uh, and he kind of felt, well, I'm going to live to survive at least another day. Then he started seeing, realizing that the Germans were shooting at him as he came down in his chute. Well, so they got a little it. angry, a right. little upset, made it personal, and he started cursing the Germans as he was coming down. Uh, as he got closer to the ground, he could see the Germans following him as he drifted to the ground, and he uh, figured that he was going to be caught soon as he soon as he touched the uh, ground. So the French underground, obviously, the incredible, courageous people that helped uh, Americans and other soldiers fighting against the Nazis. Uh, he probably loved those people just like family. Well, he did. Uh, he was uh, obviously he survived, or I wouldn't be here, but he was able to evade the initial capture by Germans and make his way in to, with uh, friendly French citizens who eventually got him in contact with the underground. And during the... Initially, uh, they were going to try and get him back to Allied control as soon as possible, but he was shot down May 28, 1944, which was just 10 days before the D-Day invasion of June 6, 1944. And that changed everything. Now the priority was getting people in with intelligence and supplies on targets and get people out that knew certain things that the Allies needed to know. So as a result, he was moved around to several different locations. Uh, and he made close friends with the people that, uh, that hit him from the Germans, uh, and some of them were lifelong friends. The last family he stayed with, the Bear Tees, uh, he visited them several times in France, and they came to California to visit uh, him uh, in California at least two or three times. And he was in one of only two Americans invented by, invited by the French government in 1965, right, to represent the American military. Yes, they had a ceremony uh, in 65 uh, celebrating the end of the war. It came out just shortly after the book is Paris Burning was published. And Dad and some of the people that saved him are mentioned in the book. But Dad represented the, uh, the airman, and the other American that was invited represented the, the infantry. And they were guests for the French government to Paris to celebrate the end of the war. So this is a personal day-by-day account of what happened to your father. That That is just, uh, I mean, you couldn't ask for a, a bigger window in time as we here in 2010 to really understand what he went through. It is. It, uh, it shows what happened behind the scenes. I mean, you know, you read the headlines, you know about the battles, but these were behind the scenes that, private citizens doing things to help the war effort. Uh, and, and this was a case of 
friend helping friend, even though the friends didn't speak the same language or different countries, uh, but they had one common goal, which was to uh, defeat the, the Germans and regain the freedom. Uh, and he, he tells about the individuals that helped him, uh, how he was moved from place to place. Uh, and I think one big difference between uh, the way Dad wrote the story and what happened to him is that this whole time, because of the D-Day invasion, he was not able to be moved out, and he stayed in France until Paris was liberated, and he was moved several different locations. And he was out. He was able to see things. He uh, was able to go out into. Uh, he, in other words, he wasn't held in a cellar the whole time. He had contacts with French citizens. He had uh, some real close encounters with uh, some Germans as well during that three-month period. Now, let's talk about a couple of those. Uh, you write about a beautiful German corporal named Lisa. Yes, that was uh, his first encounter uh, with the, the enemy. Uh, the first place he stayed was in a bar, and it so happened that the people that owned the, the bar restaurant uh, spoke English. Uh, they were Basque. They had spent time in uh, Central America. They also were performers. They had a band, and they uh, played at the Waldorf Astoria. So they knew New York. They knew U.S. They spoke English. And I think it was the first or second day that he was there. The restaurant was closed for the afternoon, but uh, Carlos forgot to lock the door. And Lisa came in with a couple of her German soldier friends. And so they had to ad lib. And uh, Dad was there at the bar, and he was introduced as a friend of the owner who spoke some English. And he and Lisa began talking. Uh, and it got, uh, it got to the point where he was wondering how much information he was given, whether he was talking too much, and... Uh, a little concerned, but at the same time, there was mutual attraction between the two of them. <laughs> That's right out of the movies. Yeah. Right out it, of it, the movies. It is, and it's true. It, uh, you know, and I've said this before, that you know, Forrest Gump was a great movie, and Forrest Gump was in you know, numerous events throughout the course of the years the movie took place over uh, and was involved in some significant events. But that was all fiction. This is this isn't fiction. This is things that uh, really happen. It's true. It's factual, and uh, you know it's amazing that because he 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 started the war December seventh, nineteen forty one. He was at Wheeler Field and uh, waiting for orders for, to begin pilot training. Later went to pilot training and then uh, was shot down over his. Paris over his 35th mission uh, was there when Paris was liberated and then after the war, which we called and flew the Berlin Airlift. Well, he encountered a German roadblock, again, something that seems like right out of the movies while he was being moved by the underground. Give us some details. Well, he was being moved. Uh, this was, he, he had been staying at, a, at an, an apartment in uh, the Versailles area. And uh, I don't think I mentioned this before, but uh, they had 
the person he's staying with ran the railroad yard, and they came to find out that the Germans had 300 tanks in the yard that they were going to be moving out that day, and this was shortly after D-Day. So the underground, and there was probably several messages sent, but but uh, his group, Dad, wrote a message saying, 300 tanks going to be leaving tonight. Well, the RAF came in and bombed that evening and destroyed the tanks. That caused a lot of pressure on the underground, so they had to move him. So they had him between two gendarmes. They had him cuffed. The, the, the cover story was that he was a French prisoner going to be uh, taken to be executed. And they encountered this roadblock, a German roadblock, unexpectedly, and the German sticks his head in to, you know, to check the papers and everything. The gendarmes are sweating profusely because if they get caught, they're going to be tortured and killed. Uh, and this, you know, this uh, Hitler's uh, profession of the Aryan race, you know, the uh, uh, the utopian society. This sad sack corporal sticks his head in, and he's got a Adam's apple bobbing back and forth, and he's missing teeth, and uh, uh, he he looks at Dad and sees that he's going to be executed, and sees someone that's in an, in you know worse situation than he is, stuck on the side of the road uh, watching cars, and he breaks into a big grin, and for that relieved the tension, and Dad just. Uh, grin back at him and the soldier waved them on uh, much to the relief of the two gendarmes who were sweating profusely. Well this is an incredible World War II tale of high adventure obviously uh, the real uh, reality uh, beyond probably what we can even imagine probably what you can even imagine right Hank? Yeah it's just amazing that all these things happen uh, and you know, when I grew up as a kid, I, I knew some of the story, but, uh, you know, I didn't know all of it. I knew that he'd flown. I knew that he had been shot down. I knew that the French underground saved him. Uh, but, you know, of course, I'm biased, but I think it's a great story. I think the way Dad wrote it, it he, it's not a, well, this happened, and then I did this, and then, then I did this. It's almost like you're a fly on the wall, the way he describes the events. You're, you're there. You can actually see it happening. It's, uh, of course, I'm biased. I think it's a great story. Well, as he wrote, uh, certain events presented very tense moments for me as a young American pilot who couldn't speak a word of French, but there were also frustrating periods of waiting and wondering, many days filled with apprehension, when all I could do was try to stay aware of the events that were unfolding around me. So this, a day-by-day account of Henry C. Woodrum. And, of course, uh, he passed away in 1990, retired Colonel, U.S. Air Force, retired. His son, Hank Jr., has published his book. And thank you, Hank, for doing this, and tell us how to get your book. Well, thank you very much, uh there's a website that tells a little about the story and, and about Dad. That's uh, www.walkout1944.com. There's a link there where you can order the book. And it's also available uh, online at all major book retailers, Amazon.com, BarnesandNoble.com, and iUniverse.com. 
Well, it sounds like it should be made into a movie. Well, we're hoping. Well, thanks again, Hank. Thanks for being on iUniverse Radio. Well, thank you, Steve. Appreciate it a lot. That was Hank Woodrum, Jr. He has published his father's book, uh, his father, Henry C. Woodrum, and the name of the, in the title of the book, Walk Out. You're listening to iUniverse Radio. We'll be back right after these messages. Get ready for the Not-So-Soccer Mom Tuesday afternoons at 1 Eastern, noon Central on Toginet with Jill Hickey. You name it, from politics to pop culture to Jill's search for the perfect bronzer and chicken salad. The Not-So-Soccer Mom will weigh in on it all. The sentence, I have no opinion about that, is one that Jill has never uttered. In the early 90s, Jill finally decided to put her thoughts, opinions, mom advice, love of pop culture, hummus, and Starbucks, working out, cosmetic shopping, and politics into an actual website, and thus NotSoSoccerMom.com was born. Shortly after her fourth child, a boy, Jerome, now she's really got tons of topics to share with you. This is Laugh Out Loud Funny, and we're not kidding. What's a loud Nebraska girl who lived in Little Rock for many years and now is up in the Northeast doing, chronicling her opinions on everything? The wheels aren't off yet, but it's close. It's the Not-So-Soccer Mom with Jill Hickey, Tuesday afternoons at 1 Eastern, noon Central on toginet.com. Innovation and insight, problems and solutions, capitalizing on your ideas and efforts. That's all a part of Changing the World One Invention at a Time with Rick Rowe. Thursday evenings at 6, 5 Central on toginet.com. Rick will be sharing stories of innovation, invention, inspiration, and overcoming obstacles with guests who have been there, done that, and are doing that. Rick will be asking the right questions helping you identify the real problems and showing you how to act on your ideas by increasing consumer confidence and, more importantly, increasing your confidence to act on your ideas. For even more information, go to thinktech, that's T-E-K, globally.com. Then join us as Rick and his guest teaches how to develop new ideas and create new products, new businesses, new jobs. And together, let's get our economy growing again. It's changing the world one invention at a time with author and inventor Rick Rowe. Thursday evenings at 6, 5 central on toginet.com. Welcome back to iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, Why Am I Eating This? Seven Simple Steps to Retrain Your Mind About Food. And the author is Sandy Robertson. And Sandy joins us now on iUniverse Radio. Hello, Sandy. Hello, Steve. How are you today? Well, I am hungry. No. (laughs) But you're going to help me control what I eat. And boy, do we need that. Let me read just a few sentences about what you have written about your book. You say this. I just came up with the best system for limiting your food intake and giving your body what it needs. Pay attention to every morsel of food you eat. Have gratitude. Ask yourself, why are you putting food into my mouth right now? And keep saying to yourself, I am eating slowly. I am grateful for every bite of food that I'm eating. Chew. Put my fork down. Stop eating when I'm no longer hungry. It works. Seven simple steps, right? It does. It does work. Try it. It absolutely works, I promise. Tell us about your background, Sandy. I'm a nurse by training. I have a bachelor's in nursing. And 
right away after graduating, I knew that I was interested in prevention, wellness, health promotion. I actually got a master's in community health nursing, focused on corporate wellness, fitness, and worked in corporations in New York City for about 15 years. And part of that was doing health promotion for the employees. And these were very large companies with sites all over the country, so it involved running groups locally, writing newsletters, doing big, large health promotion campaigns, and just creating this overall awareness of the elements that it takes to have a healthy lifestyle. And I realized that a lot of it has to do with your mind and being actively engaged in this process. It just doesn't happen automatically, magically. You have to think about it and set yourself up, you know, to win in all ways. And you're one that has walked the talk. I have. I have. I was one of those chubby children called Tubbs, I remember, in sixth grade. In high school, it got better, but then going to college, put on a lot of weight. And after college, when I started in the corporate wellness fitness, teaching it and being actively involved in this every day, it became easier when I put all the pieces together seeing how important it was, as I write in the book, to pay attention and to really, as I say, it's a mind game. You have to use your mind, plan ahead, plan strategies, pay attention to everything you're eating, think about, do I really want to be eating this right now? You know, it's called self-talk, part of cognitive restructuring. And it doesn't matter if everyone around you is stuffing their faces. That's the hardest part sometimes. You have to be your own best coach and really literally talk your way through it. No, slow down, pause. I don't need to be eating that right now, or I'm full. Stop. Self-awareness, you talk a lot about this, and of course you've mentioned this is a mind game, so we need to be more, uh, what's the word? We just need to participate more, I guess, in our eating. It's just not sitting there at the table with all this wonderful food, and, and boy, we certainly have amazing amounts of food around us at any given time it says so we've got to get involved in this self-awareness of of what we're doing because most of the time we're not thinking about it we're just enjoying the moment yes and, and it's fine to enjoy the moment but when we eat mindlessly and eat just because it's there or because someone served it to us or because we go to a restaurant and it's there on the table, that's where the problems come in, especially when people are using food as really a drug of choice for mood control. And, you know, they have 12-step programs, O-Readers Anonymous, and people readily admit they're using food for comfort, which we all do, but too much. A lot of people have a real problem with it, and they finally get to acknowledge that they're eating for reasons that have nothing to do with hunger. It's to, to address emotional issues, depression, sadness, anger, not being willing to feel emotions. It's just much easier to eat way too much. And so the paying attention has to do with, yes, we need food. We need fuel. We want to enjoy food. But there comes a point where you're going past that point of I have enough nutrients for my body, and people don't know how to stop. And that's where the problems come in. And then they wonder why they can't lose weight. It's because they've not fostered and practiced that ability to stop. 
And as you put it, uh, they're really stuffing the emotion and ex- instead of expressing the emotion. And so we get caught up in this vicious cycle. Absolutely. And not having alternate healthier channels for stress. You know, we all have stress. We all have stuff going on in our life. But when we turn to the bag of potato chips or candy to solve that versus going for a walk, taking a breath, meditating, calling a friend, having a hobby, going out in nature, you know, looking at the sky. Again, that's where the problems come in. And I write about that the statistics in this country that, you know, we're headed to one-third of people being obese. Obesity now affects 60, 60 million people. And it's, so it's not about people not knowing what they should eat and not eat. It's, it's the basic premise of my book is that people are overeating for reasons that have nothing to do with hunger. And if they stop and ask themselves, why am I eating this? You know, it could be with humor. Why am I really choosing to, to put food in my mouth right now? Or with humor, you know, do I really want to be eating that right now? How will I feel? If I keep eating, how will I feel if I eat three chocolate bars or a bag of Oreos? So the self-talk and the self-questioning, and again, it can be with humor, back to being your own best coach, can really help each person to walk themselves through the, okay, let's just take a moment here. And, and what does that, what that does is disengage the impulse to just eat to eat mindlessly, to eat impulsively, compulsively, once again, for reasons that have nothing to do with hunger. Talk a little bit more about this self-talk. Uh, obviously, we all face frustration in life, stress, and you compare or, or, or there's a negative self-talk versus positive self-talk. Help us with that. Well, self-talk is a brand of... It's called cognitive restructuring in psychology. Actually, self-talk is an element of cognitive restructuring, where psychologists look at, you know, when things go wrong during the day, what's the first thing that you say to yourself? And we're all talking to ourselves all the time from the moment we wake up in the morning. And so part of this brand of psychology is just noticing from a neutral place When things go wrong, what do you say to yourself right away? Is it, oh, no, here we go again. This always happens to me. I'm a bad person. I'm a failure. I can't do anything right. And start this downward spiral. And thoughts affect feelings and emotions affect actions. Or are you someone who, when things go wrong, you say, no problem. I can handle this. I'm going to get a hold on this. I can do it, no problem, and you take a deep breath, maybe get up, walk around. Why this is important is that what you're saying to yourself all the time is affecting how you feel and your emotions. That has a direct impact on your actions. So if you're essentially beating yourself up when things go wrong and have a sense of helplessness and hopelessness, you walk into the kitchen, it's, well, who cares? I might as well just eat a gallon of ice cream. Who cares? So the self-talk is a very powerful way to redirect yourself to a more positive way to look at things, to reframe it, 
and that will guide you to a healthier feeling in that moment, and that will guide you to a healthier action, which will give you a sense of mastery and confidence over the situation. Why is it so important to be grateful for all this food? What, what, what does, how does that help us change our mindset? Gratitude is very powerful. It puts you into that mode of appreciation and that things are good, that I am blessed. And a lot of people who overeat, while they're eating, at the same time they're thinking, I want more or this isn't enough. You know, cravings can kick in. You can only be holding one thought in your mind at a time. So if you are deliberately thinking, I'm grateful for this food. This is enough. I do an exercise in my classes, the the cranberry exercise. People also do it with raisins where you eat very, very slowly a cranberry, savoring it, chewing it, tasting it, really appreciating this cranberry. And at the end of it, you can last five minutes. I ask people how they feel. And interestingly, people say, I feel fulfilled. And I say, well, do you want to eat more? And many say not necessarily because they have brought this element of fulfillment to the eating of one cranberry. And that brings home the point to them that when they're putting their attention on fulfillment, gratitude, appreciation, miraculously, that really fills them up in a way. So they don't need to be really mind, body, spirit not just physically. They don't need to then have their attention on, I want more, I want more. Instead, they fill themselves with the thought and the emotion of, I have plenty, this is enough, I am thankful. Of course, we're bombarded with advertising. Uh, We go to restaurants, and there's always these huge portions. Most of the time, it's it's much more than we really need. And it seems like we're just conditioned. And, And, of course, you talk about these food patterns, and, you know, you've been... Uh, mentioning our eating history, it's, but it's, it's something we can break, can't we? We can push away from the table. We can say, bring me a, a, a doggy bag. I'm going to take this home. Yes, you can learn new ways. And as you say, recondition yourself. It's the knowledge of what is the right amount of food to be eating. What does a healthy plate look like? A healthy plate has three or four ounces of protein, which is about the size of a deck of cards or computer mouse. Vegetable, salad, a small, you know, half a cup of rice or potatoes. And when you get that mental mindset of what a healthy plate looks like, and then you go to a restaurant, you have that gauge to say, this is three or four times the amount of food that that I need, and yes, please, I want to take it home. Even if it means right from the beginning, say, can I please have a to-go container from the minute you get the food? It's back to that self-awareness and paying attention, realizing it's way too much fuel for your body. Your body doesn't need that much, despite what the marketers would have us believe. Now, at the end of every chapter, you have a meditation page. Yes. Back to the power of the mind, the mind, body, spirit, and meditation or prayer, whatever you want to call it, really quieting the mind to quiet the body is a powerful tool since so much of mindless eating is driven by our, our emotions, perhaps being upset, 
depressed, angry, and again, anything you can do to quiet the mind, to quiet the body, will help you gain control and gain mastery in the moment that you're eating. So you don't have to call it meditation. It could be taking just a few breaths. And really, as you're eating, you can say to yourself, pause, slow down, put your utensils down, take a breath. But the the meditations are a tool to help people see and feel, experience, that there's a different way to approach food. Bring all of your senses in a quiet, relaxed, appreciative mode. Again, slowing things down, taking away the, the impulses to just eat, and realizing that this appreciation can help you determine in a much more deliberate way the amount of food you're eating and be satisfied. So you're bringing more to the eating experience than just it's time to eat, chow down, eat, done. When people realize they can engage their mind, body, and spirit in the eating process, it really becomes a gift that they're bringing to the process of eating, a whole new set of tools, a way to enjoy eating and not feel deprived, instead to feel grateful and to feel filled up with all the senses that they're bringing to the experience. The title of the book, Why Am I Eating This? Seven Simple Steps to Retrain Your Mind About Food. It has seven chapters with everything from self-awareness, pay attention, uh, uncover the mystery of your eating history, self-talk, gratitude, eating light and right for you, and then... The new blueprint, the new blueprint, and a new you, right? Absolutely, a new you. Well, Sandy, tell us how to get your book. You can get my book, Why Am I Eating This, on whyameateingthis.com, or through Amazon, or through iUniverse. But whyameateingthis.com is probably the easiest way, direct to the website. Well, thank you for being on iUniverse Radio. I'm going off to eat, and I'm a changed person. I really think I'm a, I'm, it's, it's, uh, I'm not sure I really like this. <laughs> well, thank you, Steve. Just remember to breathe ah, and keep breathe. enjoying it. Yes, well, Just I agree. We, we love food, and you are so right. We have got to think about what we're doing, and I'm sure we have a healthier better life. So thanks again for being with us. Thank you, Steve. Thank you. Have a wonderful day. That was Sandy Robertson. She is the author of her book, Why Am I Eating This? Seven Simple Steps to Retrain Your Mind About Food. You're listening to iUniverse Radio. We'll be back right after these messages. Hi, everybody. This is Pete Six of Beatles and Beyond. Why don't we all come together and hear some of the tracks off the latest Beatles release on this radio station. Yes, 
why don't you look up the schedules on this radio station and join me and Beatles listeners everywhere to hear the latest releases from the Beatles on Beatles and Beyond with Pete Dix. Girlfriended is on Toginet. Thursdays at 10 a.m. Eastern, 11 a.m. Central, with your hosts Patty Wyatt and Lisa Jernigan. This show is your chance to share, learn, laugh, and connect with other women. The Girlfriended principle was born out of loss. Lisa had recently had her mother pass away from cancer, and my mom um, was murdered. A man just walking into a room and started a 23-second shooting spree. I think one of the things we both realized going through those tragedies is that you can be extremely okay and be extremely sad. Check out Girlfriended.com. And then be a part of Girlfriended, the radio show, Thursdays at 10 a.m. Eastern, 11 a.m. Central. You know, your boyfriend or, or your husband or whatever, they don't totally understand that emotional side to a woman like another woman does. And I think that's so important just to mm-hmm. have somebody that you go, she gets me. Check out the website, girlfriended.com. Don't miss Girlfriended with Patty Wyatt and Lisa Jernigan, Thursdays at 10 a.m. Eastern, 11 a.m. Central on toginet.com. Welcome back to iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, Muscle Bound, and the author, David Marlowe. And David joins us now on iUniverse Radio. Hello, David. Hello, how are you, Steve? Good to have you with us. Now, let me read what you have written as an introduction for everyone so they can understand the general theme of the book. You say this. Musclebound explores gay relationships among bodybuilders who are obsessed with building muscle and getting into the best shape possible. You also say it explores the psyche of the homosexual and shows the lengths to which men will go to become muscular and therefore attractive to other gay bodybuilders. Well, David, why have you written this book? What was the motivation? Well, I wanted to explore a certain segment of the gay population two aspects. One is the, uh, in, with all the gay lip that's out there, there doesn't seem, there didn't seem to be anyone addressing the uh, subject of muscle obsession and gym addiction and steroid abuse and these various um, other aspects that have to do with physical attraction and body image. And you know, while I also wanted to explore what I call the homosexual agenda. And homosexual, although it sounds like homosexual, is spelled R-O-A-M. And it's a play on words, obviously. And what it's talking about is gay men who roam, literally, from relationship to relationship to relationship. And uh, it's, what, I, what I realize and what I've written about is that I think it is something that is kind of inherent in the male DNA, in the makeup of, of the male. Now, this takes back, take us back to... Uh, my original thesis, thesis, which is that we have a major cultural myth in America, and the myth is essentially this, that when we're, when we're young, we are told that we're going to grow up, fall in love with the most wonderful person in the world, and probably get married and live happily ever after. The myth that comes in there is that they don't tell the second part of it, which is that for, uh, this is just a guess, a, a guesstimate on my part, but I would say between 80, 85, 90, perhaps 95% of couples, sex life between the two of them and physical attraction between the two of them becomes routine somewhere after two days, two weeks, two months, or two years after they get together. Now, when you have a male and female situation, like 
90% we consume of, of relationships are. By the time that that routine sets in, people are usually kept in the codependency based on mortgages, children, the car, their jobs, whatever it might be. When you have two men who are together in a gay relationship, they, that once the sex becomes routine, then there is, there, is either no, there is no reason to stay together anymore unless they stay together possibly as companions or roommates, which is a very common and prevalent uh, condition in the gay community. So in your book, you explore your thesis through three different main characters. Uh, let's first talk about Chase Hyde. Okay, well, Chase Hyde is the uh, proponent of, of the, the, the piece and, in, in a sense, the anti-hero because uh, he is the, almost the founder of the homosexual club. It is his particular desire to not want to settle down, but he understands that what that, that, that the essence of man is to want to roam. In the same way, a bull never, never has sex with the same cow twice, um, and, and the way lions like to go from pride to pride, have eaten sex with every female before moving on to the next pride, so too, I believe, men are wired to go from relationship to relationship to relationship and not really settling down. What you have essentially is, I mean, the big joke between uh, about gays and lesbians is, I mean, gay men and lesbians, they say, what do lesbians bring to a second date? And the answer is a U-Haul truck, because women are nesters, and when lesbians get together, they often settle down very quickly and last for a long, long time, maybe even forever, because they are by, by uh, inherently and by nature nesters. The, answer, the second part of that joke is, what do gay men bring to a second date? And the answer is, what second date? <laughs> now, I also thought that this was perhaps just a gay thing. But then I re remember back, flashback to high school, and I remember a, a big locker room joke in high school. What is the definition of eternity? Eternity is the time it takes for him to come and her to leave. So it is, it, it is a male thing. And uh, men trained by, by, by female back when they decided that marriage was an institution that kept families together, kept disease from running rampant, and that's why it was established. But in the gay world, you don't have the same rules applying. Now, let's talk about who you call the hopeless romantic Hunter Rowe. Yes, Hunter Rowe is, is kind of the, the, the opposite of what, of what Chase is. While Chase is determined to just sleep with as many attractive men as he can in, in, in his sexual lifetime, Hunter has this romantic vision of finding the one true love of his life and settling down forever. And what, and what he does is he works very hard once he meets Chase, Chase Hyde, to foment this relationship, to make it grow, to make it prosper, and to make it succeed. However, what you find in the, in the, in the, in the second act of the book is uh, he finally wins Chase over, and Chase finally actually decides and tests himself, you know what, I really love this guy, maybe monogamy is such, not such a bad gig, maybe it can be done after all. And what happened then is you get what Stephen Sondheim in his clever lyrics said, I've got those, gee, why don't you love me? Oh, you do, I'll see you later blues. And so Hunter actually disengages from Chase when he realizes that he can have him. Because I guess having him is not what he really wanted after all. Now, and he's just another homosexual out there on the market. Now, we have another main character, Kristen Falconer. Now, he has a real conflict because of religion. 
That is correct. Christy Falconer is, was brought up in kind of with a, a fundamentalist background, with a, a deeply religious mother and uh, and a very stern father. And I wanted to, uh, to offer what is for many men a very, very difficult time in coming out. I mean, I think everyone can, can understand and empathize with the, the difficulty that men have in, uh, all women that have it in coming to, to terms with their gayness because it is so different from what everyone else is feeling or supposed to be feeling and doing. Uh, in fact, there's this rash we've been having of, of teenage suicides that have been in the, in the news over the, over the last few months because of uh, people uh, discovering their homosexuality or whatever it is and killing themselves over it, um, just, just put the spotlight on the problem. Now, we have another uh, news kind of tie to all of this, and with this obsession of just looking the best, many uh, gay bodybuilders get heavily involved with steroids? Well, yes, uh, they do. I mean, that, that is a gay and straight thing, I and mean, the uh, a straight men do it as well. But the, the interesting thing about that is that, uh, you know, I'm always curious. Uh, that one of the, what Chase Hyde says in the book about bodybuilders, and when it comes to bodybuilders, he felt that all men are either gay or Jews. And by that, what I mean is, you speak to a a gay bodybuilder who said that he is doing it, he is getting into the best shape because he wants to attract women. Now, that is something of a fallacy in the sense that, sure, I think women very often like. Uh, men who are who who are well developed and in good shape. I don't think they like the hyper super muscles, especially the, the big uh, muscle monsters that that are created from steroids. But they do they can appreciate a a, a well built body. The reality though is that they they it is a priority that is way down on their list after security, intelligence, sense of humor, uh, you know, the ability, compassion, empathy, all these other things that 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 that, that women look for in men. Whereas men, on the other hand. Uh, the physical thing is for, for both straight and gay men. The physical attraction thing is way up there at the top. You know, pretty pretty, pretty close to the top. That almost, but nothing else supersedes it. Men are more shallow than women because they're looking for its physical attributes first, and every and then if the rest of the package comes along, then then they're happy about it. Where for women, they are interested in in, in other aspects about a man. Now, you believe that uh, other gay books have uh, really not touched on. Muscle, muscle obsession, gym addiction, or this steroid abuse. Uh, that makes you your book really different from uh, the rest. Yes, I think it make, does make it stand out. They get, get books about men in great shape and so on, but they're not talking about this is kind of has as its, as its background the, the entire um, muscle obsession thing, the, the building of it, the maintaining of it, and the looking toward another man. You make this statement, uh, intimate relationships are hard and require a lot of work and sacrifice. So it's, that seems to be kind of flying in the face of uh, what homosexuals are trying to achieve. Well, I couldn't agree with you more. I think that that, that is what it is. That uh, I, what it, the cliche is, is the essence of relationship, and I think that is quite true. And I think relationships take a lot of uh, a lot of effort, a lot of patience, and a a lot of understanding. I think you know, back to when we're when we're growing up and we're being taught what's going on and everything. No one really gives us a a map or outline of, of of what to expect. And I think that's true in both straight and gay circles. However, in gay circles, it's even less so because what what you're all you're told really is that it's the worst thing in the world. Ten year old boys uh, fooling around in the playground when they talk about things. The worst thing they can call one another say, "Oh, that's so faggy," or be called a faggot is like the worst thing in the world. 
and and even if someone's sexuality you know is not in question it's just a pejorative uh, that is there and that's why a character like christian falconer who has won his his christian guilt because of his, his uh what the what the far right in the country ha- have given and the religious right in the country have given homosexuals to place that guilt on them and then just be coming to terms with with your sexuality and your true essence in uh, in general makes it very difficult for people do one of these characters uh fit david marlowe well you know what uh, i've written five novels now and i'd have to say that in every one of my books are at least part autobiographical and that you even when you create characters or take uh look at you know say a friend or, or an acquaintance or someone you know and you take aspects of their personality or aspects from several people's personalities and put them together into one character there is always a great deal of view that you put in all your characters whether male female straight or gay young or old so i think yes part, part of that is uh it's safe to say is, is uh, you know it, it comes from myself what was one of the uh, greatest challenges in writing this book why well, did just just you know i think for, for, what i've done is i've been very fortunate because I'm, you know, I hear about people staring at the, a, a blank white page, and I've never had that. I've never had what they call writer's block. The muse has been with me every time I sat down to write. And what I do is, uh, my my work habit is, is always the same. I, I take, get up, I make breakfast, I bring it to the computer, I read the, the, the day before, the, the writing I did the day before, and then I go on and I forge ahead and do the, uh, the next four pages, at least. You know, I make set, set a minimum, minimum for myself, and I continue on and on. And then once I have a beginning, middle, and end, that is, uh, or, you know, what is essentially a rough draft, that is my favorite uh, part and the favorite point, because at that point, then you start going back and forth and start um, rewriting and, and, and putting it all together and making it all jive. And talking about uh, men, uh, homosexual men, who are really attracted to uh, muscle, uh, but you say few of them really do anything about it. Yeah, I think that is true. I think that a lot of men, I mean, if you, it's interesting. There's a, a feeling in our society, I think, that, that if you, you see men who are in great shape, and after a certain age, like men over 35, 40, 50, if they're still in great shape, skin, they can often come with a suspicion that they may be gay because why else would they be doing it and so it's uh, you know it's, that, that that is what i kind of address in the book david what are some of your closing thoughts well just that it's um, i wanted to present a situation that is out there and hasn't been explored yet in this uh this thing about the homosexual who essentially goes from man to man to man to man and wanted to write about a particular man who part of the dichotomy with men is that there is especially if you see it online you see uh, people trying to connect and what they're saying in their profiles is looking for an LTR looking for a long-term relationship but for them the long-term relationship often doesn't last much past 30 seconds past orgasm and I wanted to explore that because what they're saying is although they think that's what they want because that's what society has told them that what they want what they really want is to be able to Enjoy the adventure of the next, uh, the next romance, the next mini romance, the next conquest, the next sexual uh, tension. Do you have a website? I do have a website. It's www.davidmarlow.com, and that's M-A-R-W. And uh, you can order my books from there or from the iUniverse website or from Barnes & Nobles or Amazon.com or any of them. Well, David, we really appreciate you being with us on iUniverse Radio. Well, it's been my pleasure. I thank you for the interview.
That was David Marlowe. He is the author of his book, Muscle Bound. iUniverse Radio is brought to you by iUniverse, the leading book marketing, editorial services, and supported self-publishing company. iUniverse Radio is produced by Toginet Radio. Radio with a cutting edge.